All right, good evening. Thank you, Pastor Stephen. If y'all can, turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter chapter 6. We have spent our first couple weeks here in Leviticus. I think we're moving along pretty good, don't y'all? Good. Pastor Stephen asked a couple questions and I was thinking, I don't like asking questions to y'all because I don't know what you're going to say or how enthused. I might find out when I ask a question, you're not paying any attention. So never mind. We're moving along pretty quick. I believe it. And so uh, we're going to be looking here uh, tonight at chapter six, starting in verse eight. We have seen already the uh, establishment again just to kind of put into context and remind ourselves Leviticus is not a a book of small talk. It is getting down to business and it's connected, especially with Mount Sinai connected with how the Lord God revealed himself to his people so they would know how they could live and dwell with him and they, uh, he with them, they with him. And so how can an unholy people live and dwell with a holy God here becomes the rules and the government, if you will, of how that'll happen. And so if you kind of think about it as a map, y'all remember maps? Nobody uses those things anymore. But I think there's some people in this room can remember the atlas. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And you had the thing under your seat in your truck, in your car, and what have you. And if you know, the game that we would play with my, my dad and my granddad's, If they went to the atlas, you never hear the end of it. You know what I'm saying? You're supposed to know where you're going, but when you go to the atlas, you just start making fun of them. Oh, you lost, aren't you? You see how that works? Nowadays, your phone tells you everything you don't need anymore. But if you remember the atlases, you would have a map maybe of the state of South Carolina. But then you would have these little inserts on the side of like, Columbia, You know what I'm saying? So it kind of pulled it out and it would bring it up close of Columbia or Greenville or Charleston. Y'all know what I'm talking about right now? Okay, I'm not trying. If this was, if I was doing this in student ministry, I, I could not use this illustration. <laughs> well, there's several times in scripture where this happens. I'll give you an example. Uh, Genesis chapter one and two. Genesis chapter one tells us of the first six days of creation and then he rested on the seventh day. Then Genesis chapter two is not a new day. It's pulling out day six and explaining it further. It's kind of like the insert out of the map. Does that make sense? Let's take day six and look at how he created man and woman a little bit closer. So it's not a new day. It's kind of taking what we've already seen and let's pull that out and look a little closer. That's kind of what's happening. Really, it's what's happening here in Leviticus. We have seen some of this in Exodus as the Lord explained the necessities of the the sacrificial system. We'll see again tonight how he talks about, this is our, our topic tonight about the priesthood, how that is supposed to look and what it's supposed to look like. We've seen that before. What's happening at this point then 
is you had Exodus kind of given big picture. Leviticus kind of pulls it out and says, let's look a little bit closer at how these systems and structures are going to need to work if we're going to live together. Does that make sense to everybody? This is the little excerpt out of the map to get a little bit tighter view on exactly what all of this means on how you're going to dwell together. He'd already told him you're going to have to sacrifice. In fact, he talked about grain sacrifices and guilt sacrifices and all of that in Exodus, but it was just little bits of it, right? He already said you're going to have to have a priesthood, and he already set aside Aaron and said that was going to happen. But here he's going to tell us a little bit more of how that works and what that looks like. This is much greater detail. This is much greater detail, pulling it out and helping us understand it. So if that's the case, my intent would not be for us to go down every street and nook and cranny of Leviticus. I feel like that's sometimes where, where, where we get kind of sidetracked. Y'all know what I'm talking about. That when you finish Genesis and you finish Exodus in your year-long Bible reading plan, and then you don't finish Leviticus. That's where Bible reading plans go to die. And so you ultimately get to it and you just, boom, you hit it. Because you get caught up in the details of so many little things that I think, as I said before, we want to see the forest here and don't lose it for the trees. Because this has a major, this is teaching us some major uh, uh, doctrine or teaching or requirements. It's telling us about ourselves, what's needed for us. If we, as a sinful people, are going to dwell with a holy God, how can we do that? This is telling us what's needed. So it's pointing us, as I've said before, to what we need to dwell with the Lord ourselves. And remember, before anything else, it's pointing us uh, to who Jesus is. Because as we've said so many times, the, the nature of the scriptures are to reveal the Lord to us. And so it's progressive revelation. That's what we, we call this. Y'all ever do when you were growing up a progressive dinner? Y'all ever done that? You eat your bread at one house and your, and your salad at another. And it's not what I'm talking about right now. I don't know why I said it, but this is different. This, this is telling us a little bit at a time more and more, right? More and more. Who is it we're looking for? What is it we want? What is it that we desire? What is it that we need? And every little story is giving us more and more detail of who it is and what it is that we are look who it is we're looking for and what it is we need. And that's exactly what we're getting here. It's getting more and more detail for us. So, I mean, I'm I'm I came in here tonight thinking, you know what? I think we could get through chapter 6 chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. But to, but to hear y'all, I heard that, but to hear y'all's giggling, I don't think y'all can do it. I don't think y'all believe I can do it. In the Old Testament for Israel, as the Lord sets up his government, I use that language, government, on purpose. Sometimes we think of government as a bad word, those people up north that we don't like. But what we're talking about here is you have to have a structure for society to exist upon, right? There's no way you can exist without some sort of 
governing body or documents or what all those things are needed. And so the Lord is setting up his government for how his people are to exist and dwell with him. And so when he does that, when you look in the Old Testament, revealing it on through, there are three offices, three offices that the Lord establishes in Israel, right? The first office that will, is the prophet. Moses is the first writing prophet. Moses writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses is the first writing prophet. And then you'll see the prophets come later. Some of them have their own books. Some of them don't. Elijah didn't write a book. Elisha didn't write a book, but they're prophets, right? And we read about the prophets. Some of them did write a book for us. And so you have the office of prophet. And the prophet's job was to tell us the words of God. Right, God speaks through the prophet and he tells us what God says. So the prophet is the mouthpiece of God, the word of God coming. Then you have another office, and I'll, I'll skip over the middle one. You have the king. You have the prophet and you have the king. We hadn't gotten to the king yet. We'll get to the king. The king will come in judges whenever he raises up a judge over them, but that doesn't work, and they keep demanding a king and demanding a king until finally they give, in, in, in 1 Samuel, you get Saul. And so you have the king will be established, and that's, that's that office of king. There's that middle office that we talk about, the prophet and the priest and the king. The priest is the one who intercedes on behalf of the people in between God, the mediator between God and man. It would be the priest. And so what we have here tonight in chapter 6, second half of chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, is kind of this intense detail of the, of the responsibilities, the privileges, and the duties, if you will, uh, or the abilities of the priest. And that's what we have. Now, look back with me in Exodus just to kind of get a hint. Exodus chapter 29. Exodus 29, you see the establishment here, the consecration of the priests, how they are made holy. You see what it takes to make the priests holy. You see them setting aside Aaron, which is, is Moses' brother, and so he set aside, you see there in verse 21, it speaks of setting them aside for ordination on that part. It tells you all of the sacrifice, all of the holy garments. If you remember back when we went through Exodus, we talked about all of this. It tells you what's needed. It says down in verse 35 of chapter 20, 29, it says, Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according that all I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. You shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it. You shall anoint it, consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and, for, and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever it touches the altar shall become holy. And so ultimately you see, ultimately, this setting apart of Aaron and his sons in the priesthood, Aaron and his sons in the priesthood, coming from the tribe of Levi, this becomes the Levitical priesthood, right? So there you get the word Leviticus, the, what's used for Levi, his tribe, the priests. And now these priests had certain roles, and that's what we are going to see here in chapter 6. If you go back to chapter 6 of Leviticus, we just walked through 
all of the offerings that the people were to offer, right? We just walked through that. You go back to chapter 1, and I got y'all flipping, I know, but it keeps you involved. You go back now, you got burnt offerings, you got chapter 2, the grain offerings, you got the, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, and the guilt offerings. You have all of these walking through from chapter 1 on into chapter 6. And so these are the offerings that the people were to bring to the tabernacle, the temple, to offer up as they dwell with God. This is the offering they're supposed to bring. This is their acts of worship, right? So this is what they do in worship. They bring these offerings. And so we saw how the first three were, were gratitude or peace or just some thanksgiving, free will offerings that they would bring for them. The, set, the last two were the sin offering and the guilt offering. These were necessity. Your sins had to be atoned for and your guilt had to be removed. And so you saw how they were to bring these offerings. When you get to the priesthood, chapter 6, verse 8, it just goes through all of these to describe the role and the responsibility that the priest was to play in each and every one of these offerings. So you see in verse 8, the Lord spoke to Moses. He's going to do the burnt offering down in verse 14, the grain offering. He's going to keep going to verse 24, the sin offering, the guilt offering in verse chapter 7, verse 1. The fellowship offering comes toward the end in chapter 7, verse 11, the sacrifice of peace. And so every one of these is just simply saying, here's what the priests are to do whenever you bring your offering in. And just big Big picture, there's a couple things to note here. The responsibilities of the priest. The priest was to be the one who maintains the fire on the altar day and night. Look at verse 9. There it says, This command Aaron and his son sings, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. It would be the responsibility of the priest to have the tabernacle constantly ready for the sacrifice, constantly ready for anyone to bring it in at any time, constantly ready for the sacrifice. They were to maintain it day and night. And they also, if you see in verse 19 on down when it speaks to this, this is the offering that Aaron and his son shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed, a tenth of Ippah. He basically says, not only are you to keep that fire going all day for others as they come to offer sacrifice, you must continually offer grain offerings for yourselves. And so ultimately, not only can you keep the fire going for others to bring the sacrifice, but you as priests have to constantly be offering for yourselves day and night, constantly be offering for yourselves. This was their ultimate responsibility. In this way, they helped fellow Israelites offer sacrifice, making sure that the, they were done properly, making sure the procedures were done as ordered by Scripture, and making sure that they were being obedient in their task. It would be the priest's job to help the Israelites in worship, in worship. Make sure they're worshiping as God had commanded them, right? Remember, we're going to see this, and I'm tip, tip my hat to next week because I, I started out tonight wanting to go from 6 through 10, but I felt like that was too much. And so next week we'll get back to it, but 
This is not, and I want y'all to remember this when you get to the scriptures, this is not a negotiation process, right? It's not us working out a contract. This is God saying, here's how it's going to be. And us saying, yes, sir. Y'all see what I'm saying? It's not like, wait a minute, can I do this often? That's not how this works. We're talking about the man, the, the God of the universe that made us, right? That formed us and shaped us in his image, gave us life and breath, and still even now is giving us life and breath. He's the one who made us. He's the one who can tell us what to do. Does everybody make sense to everybody? And so we must answer. So this is not negotiation here. We're going to see that next week. That just brings y'all back. But this is not negotiation. He's saying this is what must happen. And so the priest's job was to constantly offer sacrifice for themselves and to constantly have the altar ready for those of Israel who were offering sacrifices. Constantly have it ready. That was their job. They had privileges with this. You'll see over and over again, we're going to see later uh, that you know how uh, in the, when they divide up the land in Joshua, they get finally into the promised land. The priests, the Levites didn't get any land. Y'all remember that? They, they were not to get any land. They were to have cities that were theirs, right? Levitical cities that they were to dwell in. As that those would be places that sacrifices may be able to be offered. They would have cities they dwelled in. So they didn't get a land. But what it was testifying to is that all of the land belonged to the priests, right? So they were a part of all of it. They were, they were integrated into society in such a way that there was not to be one section of Israel that had priests and everywhere else didn't. So the cities were throughout so that all of the people had the benefit of the priesthood close to them and with them. And so that was the provision made for the Levites. There's provision made all throughout here as well. One of the privileges is this is how they are to eat. Because they're constantly caring for the fire at the temple or the tabernacle, they weren't able to prepare food for themselves. So what is it that the, Levit the Levites were to eat, the priests were to eat? Part of the sacrifice. So it tells us in, in, in 16, the privilege here, excuse me, in 6, verse 16, the privilege here was the rest uh, and the rest of it, talking about the sacrifice, Aaron and his son shall eat. Sacrifice is made. They do what they need to, pleasing aroma, burn it. The rest of it they shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. They shall eat it. So one of the privileges of the priesthood was that they were to eat a portion of the sacrifice that was given over to God. So this was offered to God and it was able for them to eat. This is how the Lord would take care of them as they carried out their duties, right? That was one of the privileges. Another privilege, uh, by the way, well, let me go. Step back. This is the main privilege, how the Lord would provide for them. Now, I want to say this, and I'm not, like, I'll, I'll explain some things later, but let me just say, this very passage was the exact passage that Paul used in 1 Corinthians. Whenever the Corinthians were complaining about ministers and taking care of ministers and how you're going to do it, Paul used this very passage from, from chapter 6 to 
say why you should pay the priests or the ministers for Paul or your pastor. I just had, I mean, it's in the Bible. Is what I'm saying. So if you want that, 1 Corinthians 9, 13 through 14, that's exactly where it comes from. Paul quotes from Leviticus 6 to say, it's worthy of their due, right? And so ultimately you can see that there. This was the privilege of the priest. This was the privilege of the, the priest. Now, what we also need to know, and again, tip in my hat to chapter 10, for the priest to fail at any of their duties or to do any of their duties improperly means death. So there were privileges that were there, but to carry out those privileges in an improper, unholy manner means death. Does that make sense to everybody? That's what chapter 6 has given us. Move on to chapter chapter 6 and chapter 7. We'll see a passage, a couple passages. Uh, couple passages we could we could point out there um you see well let's just go to chapter eight <laughs> ultimately that's what chapter six is all about when you bring your sacrifice here's what the priest is going to help you do here's what their role is in each and every one of those chapter eight comes down to the ordination of priests how to set them aside and so we see what their duties and responsibilities are. They were to keep the fire going, help the fellow Israelites bring their offerings so they can worship, and they were to have the privileges of eating there so as to take part in it, doing the things that the other people could not do because God had made a way for them. Is, anybody, is somebody calling me? Good. Ordination of priests. The Lord spoke to Moses and says, Take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull and the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of the unleavened bread and assemble all of the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So now you have a spectacle. So the responsibilities and the duties of priests have been made clear. Now they're going to set these, these priests, Aaron, uh, Aaron and his sons, going to set them apart for the work. And this is going to be a spectacle, right? Bring all of this stuff as well as all of the congregation and meet me. Now, I want us, if you look through Leviticus, I just want to point out, it said there in verse 4, and Moses did as the Lord commanded him. If I could just point out, and you would notice this. I'm not even pointing out all of them. But that's again in verse 9. As the Lord commanded Moses. Is again in verse 13. As the Lord commanded Moses. Again in verse 17. As the Lord commanded Moses. Again in verse 21. As the Lord commanded Moses. You see it down in verse 29. As the Lord commanded Moses. And you see it down in verse 36. Finally, and Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded Moses. It's imperative that we understand that this is God's command to them and the obedience of his people, right? God is commanding, his people are being obedient. 
And so ultimately you see that this is God's word. This is what God is saying. This is not, you know, we're getting to that point here where you see that this is not what Moses has conjured up. This is not some best way forward that they kind of put their brains together and put. This is God saying, here is what it takes. And so as he does this, Moses brings them all out, entrance of the tent of meeting, And Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Now, you're going to get a kind of a a stair-stepping, if you will, of purification right here. So here's here's Aaron and his sons, Moses there. First, we're going to wash them with water. We're going to wash them with water. You skip down to verse 12. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. So they washed them with water. Now they're going to pour oil on his head to consecrate him, set him apart. Verse 14. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons and the and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. So now, washed them with water, poured oil on them, bringing the offering here, and Aaron and his sons are laying their hands on the head, which is that semblance of transferring sin and guilt onto this animal. And then, you go on down to verse 24. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of the right ears and on the thumbs of the right hands and on the big toes of the right feet. So they sacrificed the bull. They sacrificed the ram, cut it into pieces, verse 20. They washed the entrails and the legs with water. Moses burned the whole ram on the altar, burnt offering with a pleasing aroma. They took the blood then and they put some on the lobes, on the on the lobes of the right ear, the thumbs of the right hand, and the big toe on the right foot. Now, no, that sound like something. This was a worship service. Here you have the congregation having met. They have the priests in front of them, Aaron and his sons, wash them, cover them with oil, sacrifice uh, the, the bull and the ram, take some blood, Put it on the lobe, the the thumb, and the big toe. They're testifying that these priests are being set apart for something. Being set apart for something. Now I think the 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 toe, I mean the lobe, the the thumb, and the big toe have symbolism. Um, basically, it's testifying and note as well anything that this blood or this comes from this altar sets apart as holy right it's already we've already established that and that's back in verse chapter 6 verse 18 every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it decreed forever whatever touches them shall become holy set that apart this is set apart as holy so so this is holy setting them apart and then you take that blood and you put it on them on the right side Throughout scripture, it's the right hand of God that symbolizes favor and power, right? So, so the Lord Jesus sits on the right hand, right? And so you see in, in, this, in the prophets that the Lord reach, stretches out his right hand to save. He's mighty to save, right? So, so that idea of the right hand 
And this isn't against you left-handed people. If you take offense to this, then that's on you. But the Lord is saying this, like his right hand in the scriptures, this is the, the side of favor. This is the side of favor. And so ultimately it takes that right side, right? And it puts, puts blood on the lobe, on the thumb, and on the big toe. It's the idea here for the priest, having been set apart to God, that they are to listen to him, they are to act on his behalf, and they are to go before him and before the people. And so you have it here. Listen, act, go on the feet. And so ultimately they've been set apart for this purpose, to listen, act, and go with God before the people, before the people. That's their role. That's what they've been set apart to do as priests. We have their responsibility, which is to keep the fire going, to help the Israelites in their worship, we have their privileges that they were to, to, to partake. The Lord would provide for them from the, from the offerings of the people. Partake there. You have their setting apart that they are to listen, act, and go with God before the people on their behalf. And now you get to chapter 9. See how this works, y'all? I'm scooting right along. In chapter 9 now, it's time for them to go to work. So in chapter 9, they've, they've got their orders. Here's how you handle the sacrifices. They've been set apart by God through sacrifice um, and, 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 and shown to, to listen, to act, and go before, with God before the people. They've been set apart for that purpose. And now it's time to see if it worked. Because now Aaron's about to offer up a sacrifice, and we're going to see if the Lord accepts it. That's what chapter 9 is about. It's what chapter 9 is about. It's time to go to work. We should note verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. You might miss the context of the eighth day, but if you remember Exodus 29, it tells us you're putting these two things together because that's what we're supposed to do. They're not operating separately. They're operating together. It tells us in, in Exodus 29, verse 35, seven days you shall ordain them, right? And so this process of seven days comes to an end, having set them apart. And on the eighth day, it's time to go to work. So they've been set apart, and now it's time to go to work. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said... This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. The glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. A couple of things I want us to note in chapter nine. One, the priests of God the servants of God, the priests of God, were subject to defilement themselves. You have to see 
all of this sacrifice that has to take place just to get the priest able to make a sacrifice for the behalf of the people. You see, the priests themselves could not stand before a holy God. So something had to be done for them. And so you go back and you look and it's seven days of ordination. It's, it's day after day of calf and ram and blood and everything else just to get the priest ready to start to do his job. And here, ultimately, you have it again in verse 7. You've got to, if you're going to be uh, Aaron and you're going to bring a sacrifice, you've got to make atonement for yourself as you make it for the people. And so you have to sacrifice for yourself. And so there you see that God's servants, the priests, had to make sacrifice. They're subject to defilement themselves. But also notice this. What was the sacrifice that they brought? A calf. Y'all know that's the same exact word that they used for that golden thing Aaron had the people made? Here he's saying, ultimately, that idol that you set apart, we're going to sacrifice this to make you holy again. We're going to crush your idol, if you will, the symbolism looks like. We're going to crush that idol before you and make you holy again before the Lord. Blood is going to, the very thing you thought you were going to bow down to, now, now we're going to crush that idol and make you holy before God. He's redeeming what was, what was lost here, making it right again, setting them apart. This, my friends, is grace. Because what should have happened just to, just to let you know, and we'll see this tip, we'll see it next, we're going to see everything next week. <laughs> what should have happened when, Mo, when excuse me, Aaron made the calf was Aaron's own death. You see, this is a holy God who demands holiness from the people, who has life and death in his hands. And what are the wages of sin? What we have to get through our own heads sometimes is that what we deserve is death. The very fact we're breathing right now is a gift of God's grace for us. If he truly is who he says he is, and he is holy, and he's eternally and infinitely holy, therefore any sin committed against an eternal and infinitely holy God demands an eternal punishment for it. Anyone. And yet we've stacked sins upon sins and what really is what we deserve. Y'all know how that gets when you, you love that idea when, you're, when your kids say something's not fair. You know what I'm saying? It just lights me up. Let's go. Let's talk about what's fair. Because what would be fair for us, meaning right before God, would be death. Grace comes in when God redeems us and saves us in spite of our sins. And so here he's saying, I'm going to even take this calf and now it's going, to, it's going to take you and make you holy before me. That's God's grace. It had to be a testimony to grace before, before Aaron. Not only that, we see in this chapter as they, they have to be, have their sins dealt with, we see how God appears in worship. It says it in verse 6. And Moses says, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. The glory of the Lord may appear. Here he's saying the glory of the Lord will appear. Now, this is unusual. Before you go thinking that this is, gets normal in the Old Testament, it's not normal. Y'all remember what happened at Sinai. 
The Lord comes down on the mountain and shows himself to the pillar of fire and the cloud and the thunder and all that stuff. And what do the people do? They run for their life. They're terrified. It's not something they get used to, right? It's not some, so, so we look back and go, man, it'd be great if the glory of the Lord would appear. No, I'm telling y'all, that's not what's best for us. If that's what was best for us, then that's what the Lord would do. What the Lord has done is given us something greater. He's given his spirit to dwell within us, right? And so that we see God's glory through his works and his attributes and all of his goodness that happened throughout his people and the testimonies of his people. And so when we come into worship, as they come into worship, God, they worship rightly, God shows up. And what this is actually saying here for them is that what you saw at Sinai, the glory of the Lord, you get to take a little bit of that with you into the promised land, right? You get to take a little bit of what you saw when God showed up at Sinai. You get to walk a little bit with that. What I would say to us today is this, that when we worship God truly and faithfully as he called us to do, the Lord is invisibly present with us through his spirit, which enlivens our worship. And we're not taking a little bit of Sinai with us when we come into worship. We're actually doing the opposite. We're getting a glimpse of what's coming for us in glory. Does that make sense to everybody? And so we exalt Jesus in worship. We lift him up. So, and I've said this before, we speak so you can see the glory of God, right? We proclaim so we can be seen, and God's presence is with us, which gives us a glimpse of not what has happened in the past, but what is coming for us in eternity. In eternity. God's glory appears in the worship of his people. In the worship of his people. Next thing. God's servants, God's true servants, obey. This is a major emphasis, as I pointed out in this, this passage. As the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all that the Lord God had commanded. As the Lord commanded. God's true servants obey. We see it in, in chapter 9 all throughout. You see it in verse 5. You see it in verse 6. You see it in chapter, you see it in verse six, 7. You see it in verse 10. You see it in 21. You see it all the way throughout that the true servants of God obey. Obey God and follow his word. Follow his word. Flip over with me. Oh, I'm, no, take that back. It's my Bible I got to flip over. End of chapter 9. Aaron and his sons offered the sacrifice. They put, it tells you all what they did. They put the sacrifice there to make the offering. And then it comes down to verse 22. After the offering had been made, here comes the question. Will God accept our offering? Will he accept it? Will God accept what we give? Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from, the, from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted 
and fell on their faces. The shout here gives the idea of joy. They shout and they fall on their faces. Why? Because God had come down and they had seen his glory. And the sacrifice for their sin and their guilt had been accepted. That meant what? Their sins are forgiven. That meant God was with them. That meant for them everything. They shout with joy and they worship. Now notice their posture in worship. When God shows up, and I'll say this, and I have yet to find a passage to prove me wrong. When God shows up in the scriptures, it does not become haywire chaos. People fall on their faces before him. They recognize that the, the standing there. In fact, you remember Mount, Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus shows himself in all his glory. And what does Peter, John, and James do? They fall on their faces, it says, like dead men. And remember what Jesus did? He comes up and says, hey, it's okay, right? It's okay. Ultimately, when we see God in all his glory, it's going to send us to our faces in humility, reverence, and awe. And here, God shows up. And the people shout for joy because their sins have been forgiven and God had answered their prayers. And now they worship him, bowing down before him in reverence and awe. He shows up. It's joy, right? Obedience of faithfulness toward what God has said led to joy and worship. Now, a couple of things I want to say. Ultimately, this teaches us a, a couple of things. You need to know that in our tradition, the Baptist tradition, like many Protestant traditions, we do not have priests. We, have, we don't have that role because the priest's role was a mediator between God and man, right? A man that was qualified only by God's grace where sacrifice had to be made for them. But the scriptures teach us that God has created a whole group of priests, in fact, 1 Peter 2, 9 tells us that we're all priests of God. What I mean by that is this high priest that set aside to offer sins for us, uh, offer sacrifices for our sins, he had to offer sacrifices for his beforehand. But what Hebrews reminds us of is we have a greater high priest. Our greater high priest is Jesus himself. And guess what he didn't have to do? He didn't have to offer sacrifices for his sins because he was holy before God. He had never sinned. And so now he can stand as our mediator between us and God. We don't need a man mediator anymore. We have Jesus Christ the Lord, the God-man, greater than all other mediators that came before him. And all the priests of the Old Testament only point to the one we're looking for who will be the priest that will end this whole sacrificing for them thing and he will be the final and glorious priest that will always remain in his position as priest. Nobody can take it. Nobody can remove it. So we don't need a priest anymore. We have Jesus. He is our high priest. He is our high priest. That's why we refer in the New Testament terms as pastor or elder or bishop even in the New Testament terms. Why? Because 
were set aside to lead God's people faithfully. And I do believe there are some of these things, as Paul takes 1 Corinthians and applies it here to Leviticus, there's some of these things that apply to those who are leading out in ministry, but it's not the priest position, if that makes sense. In fact, to go ahead and, and tip this off, Jesus is the true prophet. Jesus is the one true and holy priest. And Jesus is the eternal king that will reign. So all of the offices in the Old Testament that were set up are met finally and completely in Jesus. He is our prophet, priest, and king. We look to him for all of these things. He's the word of God for us, John 1.1. 1, 1. He is the, the high priest who sacrifices on our behalf. In fact, you even go, he's the prophet who's the word. He's the priest who is the sacrifice. He's the king who is the servant, right? All of these things is who Jesus is. And when you look through Leviticus, especially Leviticus 9, it starts teaching us, it starts teaching us exactly what we need in order to be right before God. We need a priest who's holy, right? We need our sins to be forgiven. We need a sacrifice that's sufficient. And ultimately, we find all of that in Jesus himself. One commentator believes that Leviticus chapter 9, uh, that it's the basically the outline, if you read through it, it's the outline of the book of Romans for Paul. In other words, Paul has Leviticus 9 in his mind as, he, as he's writing Romans. Or another author has said Leviticus 9 and Luke's gospel parallel in more than, more than one to two places. Uh, uh, it parallels ultimately in five or more places, right? Think through, and one of the places he does just to kind of point this to it is, is the idea of on the eighth day. We all do recognize what day Jesus was raised on, right? He was raised on the day after the seventh day. Y'all get that? We say the first day of the week, but there's some sense in which this was the week of Passover that the priest would be offering sacrifices every day, and then on that eighth day, here comes Jesus alive as the one who is ready to go to work for us, having been the ultimate sacrifice, interceding on our behalf, and now he's coming ready as this on the eighth day to say, here the sacrifice has been made. The glory of God has been revealed. Leviticus chapter 9 is seen throughout all of these passages, all of, all of the New Testament really, with the background is Jesus as our great high priest who sacrificed on our behalf and reveals the glory of the Lord for us. Every single time we look at Leviticus, my hope is, my hope is that we come away saying, man, I needed not, like need is not even strong enough word. Man, I was desperate. I was desperate for my sins to be forgiven. And then I see exactly what it took for that to happen. I mean, how many bulls and goats and rams were there in Israel? Because it's constant. It's constant. That's what it took for me to live and dwell in God's presence. And yet, here comes Jesus. We don't need the blood of bulls and goats and rams anymore. For Jesus is enough. And his sacrifice was sufficient. And he's the high priest that doesn't have to offer sacrifice for his own sins. But for all eternity, he can simply call back to his own sacrifice and say, that was enough for Josh. That was enough. 
And so we praise God for what he's done in Christ. And what we'll see next week, I don't know if y'all know this, but there's some stuff coming next week, <laughs> is the danger of not taking God seriously when we come to him in worship and when we see his high priest, the danger in it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness to us and giving us your word, for you are good. And so now, Father, may we glory in Christ Jesus. May we leave out of here with joy and reverence at who you are and what you have done, for you have shown up in your son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins, our great high priest, our sacrifice on our behalf. For your glory alone do we live, Father, and do we, do we seek in every way to honor you. Make us more faithful every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you all Sunday.